I am Andrew Ron. I'm an accredited rural appraiser, and I am president of the Montana chapter of the ASFMRA and communications director for the Montana Farm and Ranch Brokers Association, the two top industry organizations in the state. I am also the proud creator of Montana LandSource, the industry standard for access to rural land listings and sales, and land market information and insights. I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. As a former commercial and ag banker, my main reason for doing this podcast is to simply gauge the market's appetite for crowdsourcing investment in a ranch real estate fund. For rural land enthusiasts who want to deepen their knowledge of the ranch real estate market, grow their portfolio, and be viewed as a trusted advisor, the Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Hey guys, just wanted to give a quick note. This episode is somewhat hard to hear because we tried our first Zoom recording, but if you're a blowhard libertarian like I am and you value private property rights and free markets and and as well as uh, environmentalism, uh, this is the group to listen to. This is perk.org, P-E-R-C.org. They call themselves free market environmentalists. Again, it's, it's kind of hard to hear because of the Zoom recording, but I encourage you to try to hang in there. And in the next two recordings we have coming up, uh, very good sound quality. So be sure to follow us and follow along as our processes are getting better. It's just that you have an amateur cowboy on the microphone. Well, Catherine, can you tell me uh, what's the history of Perk? What is it? What do you guys do? What are you working on? Um, is it is it a nonprofit? How are you funded? I've heard the Koch brothers are backing you, and that could be very uh, very uh, sensational. So, can you go into uh, the history of Perk and and uh, tell us a little bit about for our listeners? What what do you do? Who are you? Absolutely. So PERC is a nonprofit research institute based in Bozeman, Montana. And we were founded 40 years ago by a group of outdoor-oriented economists at the University of Montana who were looking at the environmental debates of the day and seeing a lot of conflict and a lot of acrimony and realizing that if you took a more free market-based approach to a lot of environmental concerns, not every environmental concern, but a lot of them, you could get to resolutions um, that that were more durable and more sustainable because they were win-win solutions as opposed to win-lose solutions. And when we talk about free market um, approaches, what are we talking about? We're talking about voluntary transactions between interested parties as opposed to a command and control approach where you you must follow a law and you must follow a regulation. It's based on incentives um, primarily, and it's something that seeks to bring people together um, over a shared love of of place, a shared love of natural resources, a shared love of the outdoors, rather than divide them into good guys and bad guys. And does this... um... Do you do you accept? Do you uh, do you honor like, or do you not like the term free market environmentalism? Yeah, free market environmentalism is, is a term that we were born with. 
you know, our, our founder, Terry Anderson, literally wrote the book, Free Market Environmentalism. Um, you know, we, we believe in, in a voluntary approach to conservation. Um, you know, this can even include things like user fees. You know, you look at something like Pittman-Robertson, you know, which is an excise tariff on firearms and ammunition, which has funded state wildlife agencies for 70 plus years. Um, that's a type of voluntary transaction. You know, hunters and anglers agree to pay that tax um, in order to get some type of conservation outcome back from, from the state agencies um, that care for our elk, our deer, our, deer, our upland birds, um, our trout. So, you know, free market environmentalism is a very broad term that spans a lot of um, a lot of things. But at the end of the day, it's it's based in in that voluntary transaction approach to delivering conservation outcomes. Hey, Catherine, I was telling Clark, uh, uh, Coulter earlier in college, way back when I wrote a paper contrasting uh, Terry Anderson's book, Free Market, Free Market Environmentalism, with uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Thomas Powers out of U of M. Mm -hmm. who wrote a different book. I'm not going to remember the title of it, but uh, it was about uh, environmental economics, but from a different approach. So I contrasted those two books in a paper way back in college for an undergraduate class. I, I wish I still had the paper and uh, whatnot, but it was actually, I, I, I remember it fondly, uh, you know, diving into free market environmentalism and kind of contrasting it with other forms of uh, environmental policy and environmental protection. And yeah, very interesting stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, conservation, you know, we have to look at it like any other ecosystem, right? It benefits from diversity. And at PERC, we don't yeah. say our way is the only way. What we're saying is that we offer one way uh, of solving problems. And, you know, we would prefer that our way be the, the first thing that people turn to, you know, before you turn to other types of approaches. Let's look at this voluntary-based uh, uh, form of conservation before we get into anything that might be more heavy-handed, where you would have a lose a win-lose situation as opposed to a win-win. So, what are the core areas you're working on today? Is it, is it public land grazing? Is it hunter recreation access uh, across private lands? Is it is it public land timber sales? Is it water rights, in-stream flows, um, mineral development on BLM? What are or, or private, whatever, Keystone Pipeline, what are the, do you have some uh, baskets of, of focus that PERC is working on today? Yeah, there's a number of different areas that we're, we're focusing on. Um, you know, one key area for us is what we call healthy public lands, healthy private lands, which is understanding that, you know, ecosystems don't recognize property boundaries. And that what happens on public lands can bleed over onto private lands and vice versa. And that we really need to be managing landscapes as opposed to individual parcels. And one place where this comes into play is the conservation of big game migration corridors, which we've been very involved in, um, you know, particularly in, in the West. And we, in conjunction with you know, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, um, just executed the first elk occupancy agreement on private land in the Paradise Valley outside of Yellowstone National Park, where the landowner is being paid to allow elk to use their property. Now, why are they being paid? Well, it's because elk impose a cost on, on cattle producers. There's lost forage, there's property damage. Um, elk don't come for free if, if you're um, a livestock producer. 
but by paying them, you know, a, a lease for the habitat and allowing the elk to, to use that habitat, it's offsetting those costs that come um, with having the species on their property and helping keep that migration route um, free flowing and open, um, you know, because the elk are not being hazed off, you know, into someplace that might be less ideal habitat during that period of the year. And are, are these Western centric issues or are there, are there still um, public private or there's still conservation uh, ecosystem services issues that you'd be working on in Florida, the swamps of Louisiana, the Adirondacks, is it, or is this mainly Western wilderness type uh, issues? It's a good question. We haven't expanded into the East Coast as of yet, but we're hopeful that that will happen in the future. But we do work internationally. Uh, my background um, is actually in African conservation, and I still have a, a large footprint in that world. And, you know, in Africa, um, there is a great deal of, of focus on the private sector uh, and its role in conservation, because you go to a country like, say, South Africa, and the majority of the wildlife estate is on private ranch lands. Um, similarly, you know, in other countries, their conservation agencies are structured differently than ours are, and that they're what are called parastatals, which is essentially private corporations that are accountable to a government ministry. But as private corporations, they're funded differently. They have products that they sell and they raise their own revenue. And they're also able to accept private investment to um, cover upfront costs of things like building a national park lodge, which they then you know, return back to the investor um, you know, after a set period of time. So we're working primarily in the West, but we're also working in Africa a great deal as well. Great. Andy, any, any uh, final questions before you and I get interviewed? I have one more that that's the hot button topic. Well, I guess just uh, what comes to mind, I'm interested and I've been following Perk for a long time. So it's great to you know have you on the podcast, Catherine. And I guess this is kind of a rhetorical question, maybe or an open ended question. But, you know, obviously there's mixed social views on private capital and private property rights even interfacing with environmental action or environmental protection and do you have any any update on the state of where you know where you think that's at i mean i think montana is really interesting you know we have a lot of uneasy tensions in the state which i think you could argue in some ways you know is part of what makes montana great and you know you brought up elk you know game is a classic example you know game is owned by the state and uh, nobody can fence in game here. Nobody can hen raise game here or, you know, even, even baiting or feeding game and whatnot is pretty, pretty restricted and looked down on, but yet uh, private property is private property uh, and, and uh, private property owners have essentially full control of their, their boundaries, but uh, except that game is owned by the state and it can't be really impinged, you know, coming in and out and that kind of stuff. So do you have any, any sort of updates on, uh, on how the, our cult, our current culture and whatnot and how your guys's work is able to navigate that sort of line of private investment and um, free market solutions versus, you know, more public ownership issues. 
It's a, it's a great question. And it's obviously, as you said, a hot button topic. You know, when we, when we think about wildlife, you know, what we, what our wildlife estate, you know, if, if, if you will, it's not monolithic. Yes, the animals are commonly understood to be in public ownership. And, and yeah, that's important. That's, that's part of the American conservation culture. But at the same time, an overwhelming amount of the habitat that that wildlife depends on is in private hands. Mm-hmm. And so to neglect the role of the private landowner, or to even worse, subjugate the private landowner um, in, in a way that discourages them from providing the habitat that, that wildlife depends on will ultimately harm that public resource. And so we need to find the tools and the incentives that invest private landowners in the future of wildlife conservation. Now, how has this been done? You know, like, let's just look at some established examples. The majority of the states in the American West, you know, give landowners some type of transferable hunting tag that they can, mm-hmm. they can use to offset the costs that come with providing wildlife habitat. Now, that's obviously been controversial in Montana, and that's a debate that Montanans should have because the elk belong to, to all Montanans. But to categorically dismiss the idea of a transferable tag as being out of step with the North American model of wildlife conservation um, is not really, I think, an accurate argument because if it's already being done on such a large scale, and we're not even talking about the eastern states where it's even, you know, it's a different system and, and, and even more common. Um, if it's being done at such a large scale, how is it in violation of the North American model of wildlife conservation is, is what I would ask. So we need to find ways to, to invest landowners in conserving habitat. Something like transferable hunting tags is a debate we should have about whether or not that will actually achieve the goal of wildlife conservation. Um, more broadly, you know, within our conservation culture, I think there's a growing recognition that the challenges that we're facing are too large for government to solve alone, and that we're going to need not just the involvement of private landowners and their stewardship, but an increased amount of private capital to help drive that stewardship. And we're going to be needing to create vehicles that allow that private capital to come in um, via investable projects that then generate a conservation outcome. I know that there's some firms out there that are starting to do this, you know, in in the the real estate transaction world. I know, you know, in Maryland, you know, for example, they're revamping much of their conservation system to create a, a payment for performance uh, type of system where um, investors will will front the cash, you know, for delivering a conservation outcome. Um, hopefully, come in under budget, and then the state will pay them, and the investor will have some margin left that will constitute their profit. Um, so we can't rely on government entirely to solve the the challenges that we're facing. Um, we need to invest private landowners. We need to invest private capital. We need to understand that we all value the same things at the end of the day, and that all the time we spend quibbling and squabbling, you know, at each other, uh, is time that we could be, you know, using to actually protect the resource. Um, and you know, in, in that, you know, being understand that everyone's coming to the table in good faith. You know, everyone wants to do something good here. Um, so let's help each other do good. 
So Coulter, before we move on to, I guess, maybe Catherine interviewing us, if that's the way you put it. Um, quick story. 25 years ago, I lived in Paradise Valley and I shot a cow elk on a private property. And this, this you know, very nice ranch. This ranch, uh, they use the general hunting season for their own private outfitting for high dollar bull elk hunting. And that was part of the income of the ranch. And at that time, there was an extended season uh, past the general season that then they made available for locals like myself to come in and shoot cows. And it was, I thought it was a, a perfect arrangement uh, because I, I agree with you, uh, Catherine, you know, the, the ability for that ranch to make some money, some income on their, on the game helped them keep that place open and at a high state of quality for, for game and whatnot. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that late season situation was shut down essentially by vocal sportsmen who uh, had a problem with general season being used for private, you know, benefit only. But I always saw that as a real unfortunate um, deal because, well, first of all, one thing I want to point out, like there was nothing preventing me from paying high dollar to shoot uh, a bull during the general season. It wasn't exclusive to locals or anything like that. But, you know, of course, it's mostly out-of-state hunters that come and take advantage of those opportunities. But I thought that was a perfect uh, perfect scenario. The, 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 the ranch had the ability to, to profit on the resource and, like you said, offset some of the other costs. It was, a, it was an operating cattle ranch. So, you know, there was impacts on their feed and, you know, that kind of stuff. So they were able to capitalize, you know, on that resource. And I think they provided high quality hunting, you know, for high dollars for, for those horns. But then, like I say, opened it up for locals like myself uh, to come in and shoot cows late season. And uh, for those that aren't hunters, uh, actually, late season is kind of ideal. The weather is uh, cooler. It's, you know, elk are pushed down from the remote hilltops more and that kind of stuff. So I thought it was a perfect scenario. And it was unfortunate, I think, that that solution or that structure uh was was um discontinued yeah you know i mean listening to you tell that story that the solution that, that, that you described that's what was right for the landowner right that's what yeah that land open and and that habitat available and it seems to me yeah i don't hunt elk you know so so let's just put that on the table i'm not as you know invested maybe as some of the people in this discussion are around elk hunting, but it strikes me that nothing is going to limit elk hunting opportunity more than losing the transitional and winter range that private ranch lands provide. You know, yeah. lose that habitat, elk hunting opportunities are likely to decrease significantly. So to what extent are we willing to let the perfect get in the way of the good, to use a cliche? Um, you know, to, 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 to guarantee both hunting opportunities and conserve elk. You know, the other thing I'll throw in there too, with the hundreds and hundreds of ranch appraisals I've done in my career, it's amazing how you, you said this earlier, how we all value the same thing. We all want the same thing. I mean, it's, I can count on one hand, the number of ranches I've been on where, you know, they, they didn't like hunting or didn't want hunting or had some problem with hunting. Like, Everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants uh, elk controlled uh, to a lot of people's, to a lot of sportsmen's surprise who aren't really connected to agriculture, I guess, and 
uh, you know, landowner issues. Most landowners want more hunting, want more control, want, uh, but they just can't get it done or, you know, they struggle with the management of it and dealing with hunters. And so it's, it's a remarkable issue in that you're really right that everybody truly wants the same thing, ultimately, just has different ideas of how that should be done, I guess. And you you key in on an, uh, what I think is a key, uh, an important issue that I keep seeing raised in this discussion from the side of the landowner, which is the management of the hunting. Now, what I think yeah. people don't understand is that takes time out of a landowner's day. And, you know, time, time is money. You know, that's time that could be spent repairing a fence or picking up hay or doing some other uh, activity that adds to the profitability of the ranch. Um, I'm sure culture can speak on landowner issues with hunters. Most landowners have horror stories about dealing with hunters. Absolutely. Yeah, that that would be a whole other episode, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Catherine, I sure appreciate you coming on. And as a nonprofit, it's important that people understand how to reach you, that you're always probably looking for donations. If someone likes what they've heard, um, how do they get in touch with PERC? You can visit us at our website at www.perk.org. There you'll find out information about all of our projects and programs and also how you can support us and get involved in uh, our efforts. And, and that'll be in our show notes as well. That's uh, papaechoromeocharlie.com, perk.org. Correct. Yeah. Org. Dot org. Papaechoromeocharlie.org. That'll be in our show notes. Um, I'm happy to support Perk. I'm I'm a staunch private property rights advocate, uh, a libertarian, and I think you might have some libertarian backers as well. So it's it's my pleasure to have you on, Catherine. And that's why I was excited when you reached out. But the question you posed for me, I felt like I needed to bring Andy in on as well because we've had some good discussions. So let's get started with this topic of what you're working on, a paper you're writing, you wanted to ask us a few questions. I think just anecdotal. Well, I can only provide anecdotal. Maybe Andy has some more statistical analysis or empirical data. But uh, let's get started on, on what you're looking to accomplish with this meeting. Sure. Thank you. So I'm in the the early stages of preparing uh, a paper. Um, it won't be an academic paper. It'll be you know for the popular press that's looking at what are the implications of changes in land ownership westwide um, for conservation. I'm kind of taking a 30,000 foot view of this. And what's inspiring me to do this is not just the fact that this is occurring, you know, that we're moving um, in, in many places, you know, away from the multi-generational ag production focused family rancher to the amenity recreational rancher, who may still be doing some, some ag to you know, cover some costs or to get some farm bill credits or, or what have you, but that was not their primary source of livelihood. Um, this is obviously an emotional issue for a lot of people. You know, we are witnessing a, a cultural and economic shift in, in real time. Um, and, you know, that emotion is not always positive, um, you know, as it's directed towards some of these new you know, landowners that are, are coming in. 
And what I want to do is, is, is a fair treatment of everyone. Um, you know, understanding kind of like I was saying, like, I, I don't see demons here per se. You know, I see people who have a love of the same landscape um, and, and value many of the same things. They just live very differently. Um, so what I was hoping to, to get from you is just sort of your sense of like, what are the trends? Um, and I guess the key question is, do you see the new type of branch buyer um, being more interested in like what I call active conservation than the traditional landowner who was providing conservation values, but perhaps more passively? Um, you know, they weren't actively restoring habitat, actively restoring stream courses, wetlands, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess it's sort of like a psychological profile. Um, you know, like, are you seeing a, a, a different attitude towards conservation among new buyers as opposed to, you know, traditional owners? Uh, anecdotally, the uh, the sales I've had in the last few years, which which has been a different buyer set, it seems like they are aware and they have an interest, they have a, a want for and a like for conservation, enhancing ecosystem. The, the challenge that I kind of have to bite my tongue on quite a bit is, and this goes back to like the both sides of the aisle, we all want the same thing, but we disagree on how to get there. And that's what I've seen with this new buyer set is, whether it's whether it's uh, in vogue to be to be uh, environmental cons uh, conservation ecosystem, I don't know if that's maybe just a trendy uh, greenwashing that uh, that does play a role in their decision making for buying a Western ranch. Because I see I see their attempts to get there as lacking. Um, misguided, misinformed, uh, and poor. I, I, I'm not that optimistic and I'm not that impressed with their efforts. Uh, their efforts do not, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen their efforts match their intentions is how mm -hmm. I would sum that up. So mm. are you seeing things like, you know, I'm thinking about one ranch I'm familiar with near Jackson Hole, where the new owner thought that to conserve the area, the best thing to do was to get rid of the cattle. And of course that created a disaster on the grassland. That's, that's a huge one. And so many times uh, in Western Montana in particular, where there's uh, riparian areas and there's timber and elk, uh, a new buyer set believes cattle conflict with elk habitat and they believe cattle are going to destroy the stream banks and um mud you know murk the water uh pollute the water and that the cattle conflict is where it's most challenging for me as a i'm a salesman at the end of the day so i need to bite my damn tongue and and not interject my values my opinion unless it's asked for um so I, I have I have to maintain those type of boundaries and also serve my client and focus on the sale. But that is the 
that's the biggest challenge is uh, people not understanding that there is symbiotic relationships and that you can use livestock to enhance um, your ecosystem, your land base. If, if nothing else, maybe you get a, a little bit of a grazing fee off of a neighboring rancher and you can use that grazing fee to then put back into weed management, uh, timber thinning, improved fences, water development, whatever it might be. But like I said, the uh, cattle seem to be vilified quite a bit where there's water and timber and elk. Do you know what's driving that? You know, because it seems like it's a pretty common perception. And so that means there's probably some source that's driving that that perception these these beliefs seem to be deep deeply ingrained so i would assume that they are they are uh, years they're ages old that it's not a new thought for these landowners that they've been thinking about it for a while that uh their their negative perception of cattle are well established where it comes from I, I don't know who the boogeyman is. I, I just don't know where it comes from because that's such, to me, again, it's such a hot button topic that I, I have to defer to the sale unless they, unless they ask me for my opinion. And otherwise I try to maintain those boundaries, but yeah, the cattle are the boogeyman. And I don't know, I don't know who, who uh, is leading that vilification, but it's it's a tough one to compete against. What are your thoughts, Andy? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, grazing and overgrazing has been um, in the crosshairs and spotlighted as part of an overall, you know, environmental and conservation. And, you know, I, I, I think there's some legitimacy in that. I mean, you know, there has been some practices in the past and stuff of, you know, overgrazing and that kind of stuff. So I think in I think in some ways sometimes these new owners they're a little bit uh showing up late to the party, right? Like they've they somehow, you know, hear about some of these early criticisms and, you know, there's without a doubt there's still organizations out there, you know, whatever fighting against uh overgrazing, but you know, I think the industry has uh come a long way as far as that goes and even mainstream you know, cattle ranching and cattle industry and whatnot is far more, um, I don't know, engaged in that issue. And I think is improving all the time. And, you know, the other one too is confinement agriculture, you know, the feeding of cattle and all the resources taken for that. That's a darling of, um, you know, environmental criticism, I guess. Right. And so I think particularly people not from agriculture, maybe urban people, whatnot, that are, becoming buyers, you know, hear about that. And so the cattle, cattle are, uh, you know, uh, that's falling on the, the shoulders or the, you know, issue of raising cattle, you know, in general, I've seen improvements. I think, I think the buyer set more and more is better educated. I mean, it's still a, a huge range to be sure, but, you know, we've, we're, we're now into 30 going on 40 years, uh, in Montana of attracting a lot of, basically out of state wealth and out of staters coming and buying up properties. And early on, you know, the reputation was, you know, wealthy Californians that come and raise their fences and lock the gates and uh, you know um, all that block access and kick off cows. And uh, you know, that, that was kind of the early narrative of the conflict. Um, 
And I think that's evolved. I, I think the new buyer set, again, it's still arranged to be sure, but I think a lot of the buyers coming to Montana actually, instead of maybe in the past where it was one where they wanted to create their um, isolated compound and lock the gates and keep everybody out there, actually have a, a little deeper of an environmental interest and even kind of a cultural interest. I'm sure you've seen this too, culture like you know, some of these guys, you know, they do actually want to participate, at least on some level, in the local community. They don't want to be isolationists. Um, again, I'm going to say it a third time that there's a there's a range. We we still get the, some of those guys. But also what's interesting, we've also seen guys that maybe started off with that motivation a little bit. Um, if they actually come here and stay, if they actually um stay, you can see I'm kind of loosening up a little bit and realizing like, oh, it, you know, it's easier to cooperate with my neighbors uh, than, you know, just raise my fences and all that kind of stuff. You know, another way I've been thinking about this and talking about this is there's people that come to Montana and they bring where they came from with them and uh, don't seem to, you know, want any, to have it any other way. And then there's people that come to Montana and let Montana rub off on them a little bit. And I think there's more interest in that. There's a, some appreciation that uh, there's good things about Montana besides just open space that you can buy and lock up. Uh, but there's a there's a culture um, and you know also awareness that land management is a compl complex, complicated scenario, and you're likely to need local resources. You know, the idea that you're just going to buy this place and, you know, manage it yourself or import your management is is a farce. Um, we've seen that. So here's one one exciting anecdote, Catherine, is seven years ago when I started off in ranch real estate, uh, I was already very um, educated with regenerative ag, holistic management, ranching for profit. And I was out there promoting that, that that is a knowledge of mine, a skill set. And I was the weirdo. <laughs> I, was, I was the greeny goofball who's pitching the, this uh, greenwashed snake oils of regenerative, holistic, uh, adaptive grazing management. And um, I was definitely an outcast seven years ago. However, in the last few years, the amount of buyers that have uh, at least a baseline knowledge or an awareness to what, maybe not technically what regenerative ag means or holistic management, but it's on their radar. That's exciting. And I get, I get that change comes slowly. Uh, so that's been seven years where I'm not so much the goofball anymore. I'm not the outcast. And, and you see it uh, in us sleazy broker salesmen marketing you see other firms responding to this buyer set saying, I have interest in regenerative acts. So now brokers are out there promoting that uh, this, this would be a great opportunity for high density, short duration grazing. Uh, this would be a great opportunity for regenerative ag and holistic management. And so you see us who have a vested interest in the sale responding to what the buyer wants. That's a good thing. That's yeah. a really good thing. Yeah, that's well, yeah. And yeah, there's, wonder, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say uh on his point, um, you know, 30 years ago, some of the bigger brokerages uh, 
you know, had management arms as well. And back then what they would help new buyers do, and I would argue encourage new buyers to do, oh, we'll help you build a multi-million dollar compound. We'll help you do all these building projects and 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 maybe even like pond uh construction, but it was but it wasn't restoration really. It was playground type stuff. And Based, you know, kind of stemming from that, we had decades of over improving uh, Montana ranches and there, there's been a shift there. Now you see brokers, whether they're directly engaged, like with some kind of a management arm or at the very least, just sort of having access to resources, the regenerative, the restoration, the game and habitat that has become more common than, oh, we'll help you, you know, build a trophy mansion. Um, it's more like, oh, we can help you, you know, enhance habitat, manage that and uh, fishery restoration and stuff like that. So that's been a shift as well. And that was going to be my next question. You had kind of hinted at it before. So like when I've moved to a new place and you know, I talked to my broker, what are some of my first questions? Like, can you recommend a good plumber? Can you recommend a good electrician? You know, all the things right. own, own a home, in a new location and you don't know anyone. And so I was wondering is like, do you find buyers asking? So like, do you know someone who can help me with fisheries management or meadow restoration or you know any number of things? And related to that on the regenerative ag side, you know, there's a connection between regenerative ag and, and carbon sequestration and the opportunity to tap into carbon you know, payments. Do you mm-hmm. find any of the new buyers are asking about like the carbon, you know, potential for, for the properties, you know, that that's a way that they could generate revenue or is that not really on people's radar screen yet? I've, I've well, seen it as a, as a niche, as a subset that uh, it's almost like if carbon is of interest to a buyer, it's their primary interest that uh, they're going to pursue it that that's what their uh, agenda is. I haven't seen it as much of a secondary or tertiary interest. Um, but yeah, the and what I have also seen is the buyer said asking, can you help me with a consultant who can help uh, with soil enhancements, uh, improving the water hydrology, um, improving the, the soil structure, uh, reducing weeds in a, in a more organic means. Uh, so they, there are a lot of buyers asking for these technical services, stream bed enhancements, um, riparian areas. The, that is coming up quite a bit. Like, so I have to, I've been keeping my referral sources like, okay, who do I have for sim- something simple as a pond, someone who designs and builds ponds? And that's mm-hmm. credible. And does it does it in a uh, a way that's not uh, kind of tacky and cheesy, but works with the entire system holistically? Uh, so I, I do try to keep those referrals because it keeps coming up more and more, and that's exciting. And along those lines, over the last seven years, I've seen more and more service providers. That it seems like the free market is responding. That there are more independent contractors out there offering. Uh, consulting engineering services for pond design, stream bed restoration, timber thinning, uh, naturally managing weed encroachment. So that, that's been pretty neat to see that shift as well. Yeah, that is exciting. 
And I get calls from brokers asking me about carbon. So the, uh, the broker will have a client, will have a buyer who's talking about carbon credits. And then they call me and say, you know, what do I do with this? And uh, at this point, and we've talked about this, Coulter and I quite a bit and on our podcast and whatnot, that that's a, a really emergent market. So it's, yeah, I mean, you're only, if you're gonna, if a buyer is going to dabble on that, they're going to be an early adopter and sort of have to navigate, uh, you know, that. And, and uh, Coulter made an interesting point, you know, if that's their primary motivation, uh, they're probably not going to be a great candidate for, I mean, there, there, there have been some uh, purchases though, however, that, that, you know, have done that. So it's not that it's not possible, but my sniff test a little bit is if somebody is buying a ranch because of carbon credits, they might not be, uh, it's just not robust enough of, or, or broad based enough of an interest. You know, I think, I think that's going to lead to some issues, but it's to, I guess, to the question though, it's obviously a growing thing and we're absolutely, we're going to, see more of that. And I fully believe at some point there's going to be an established market for, for carbon credits and it's going to be part of the mix. Catherine, the, uh, then getting into, I've gone a little further with some clients and I've worked with them on cross fencing, water development, um, electric fencing along uh, stream beds, riparian areas for, for bird nests, for, uh, keeping that season or keeping that area uh, ungrazed during uh, a migratory season. I've, I've gone into some of that and with farmers, something as simple as cover crops, uh, a green manure, uh, rest rotations, whether it's rest rotation for farming or grazing. And it's uh, the, uh, going back to the challenge is they're very idealistic until they realize they're going to take a 20% plus reduction in income annually, or they're going to have to put in capital improvements to the sum of maybe 10 plus percent of the ranch purchase. So a million dollar ranch, they might be looking at a hundred thousand dollars of improvements that have a payback period of 15 years, maybe seven to 15. And, and then it's like, Oh, Okay. I, convention works. We'll just keep it conventional and standard. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it always comes down to, you know, the outlay versus the return. And um, that makes total sense that people are doing that. You know, the other thing I was wondering too, and this, yeah, I think I know what the answer is, but, you know, are you also seeing people much like with carbon asking about water rights? And not because they want to use the water rights for ag, but because they want to sell them in a larger market. Yeah, uh, but Montana doesn't have much of. There's been a few transactions of water rights in that way for municipalities and whatnot, but we don't have much of a functioning water market per se, separate from land in Montana. There, you know, there's some experts in that field. Um, in Montana to deal with with water rights. But yeah, we get a little bit of that, but nothing like Colorado or or whatnot, um, at least yet. And the, uh, the experience I have with investors searching out water opportunities is it's almost localized, kind of like your average commercial yeah. estate owner mm-hmm. uh, lives within a half an hour of the commercial building they own. Um, so not a lot of out-of-state foreign interests seeking out water rights. It's local guys that have maybe an investment club or 
they, they have this thesis where they think, oh, this water fight in the West, like we should get in. The, the long-term outlook on water is awesome. We should go buy up some Cooney Dam shares or we should buy some interest in the, uh, in the uh, Manhattan Canal around Bozeman. So it's very localized, but in, in Montana in particular and Wyoming, uh, there's those shares, those interests are not tradable. A lot of the, a lot of the LLCs are structured to where they do not allow investors to buy in. And they find out pretty quickly that uh, these local guys find out very quickly that it's not feasible. It's not going to happen. Um, and I just don't see it. At, I don't, I haven't come across it from the bigger investors uh, nationally and no corporate investors. Now, in Utah, the Colorado River Basin, where I'm not licensed, that that might be a completely different case. Okay. I guess my last question is, and you understand this is all background and off the record. Um, have we hit peak yet? You know, like are, are, are people seeking to buy amenities slash recreational ranches? It, are there still a lot of them out there that just haven't found their ranch yet? Or are you starting to see demand, you know, taper off a bit? Here you go, Andy. Here, here's your question. <laughs> you're going to get, yeah. you're gonna get hung. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would say, that, yeah, we, we are coming off of, uh, an incredibly high peak. Uh, so yes, uh, I think we're, we're coming off a peak. Although, uh, what's weird about this market though, is, uh, it's, it's not really diminished demand. There's still a lot of demand out there, uh, for, ranches in Montana, most brokers still say, you know, oh, I, I got buyers. Uh, we just can't find, you know, what they want. So, you know, we have an inventory issue that this, this, we've had a two year market essentially, um, that was blistering, uh, for multiple reasons. COVID was a big part of it. Um, but other multiple other factors as well. Um, so we're coming off of that just sort of over overheated, crazy market. Um, and it's moderating the demand is, you know, um, not quite as desperate. We, we sort of had a desperation thing. Um, I've coined it the, the refugee market, which I get in trouble for people. That's kind of politically incorrect, um, I guess. But uh, it started with COVID refugees who were looking to escape to Montana and it just continued for, you know, a good 24 months or whatever it's been. But um, in the long run, no, I think, you know, Montana is still gonna have this high appeal uh you know it's called the last pl best place for a reason um so i i don't see any true long-range change in that as far as um people who can afford it uh looking to montana for you know just these wide open spaces and everything we've been talking about elk and fish and public lands and all the things that make Montana desirable. So I'm pretty bullish that we're going to, that the Montana land market is continuing to be strong, That, but we just, we do have these crests and valleys that um, seem dramatic while we're going through them, but you take a long-term approach uh, or view of it. And it's just like, man, Montana land has been in high demand with small fluctuations for 30 plus years. I would agree that uh, the immediate frenzy is is probably over 
However, the long-term outlook, uh, we haven't even started on the incline of demand for rural recreational properties because we have 60 million millennials who can now work from home uh, who have different values and they have different uh, appreciations and qualities of life than their parents. Um, millennials who don't want to commute, they don't want to live in urban districts after they've had children. Um, they want to live in more, more rural areas with their kids. Uh, but there are also millennials who are, they're increasing wealth, uh, they're increasing their equity. At some point, they'll be able to do a cash out refi on their house and buy a second home in the Paradise Valley. Uh, everyone wants something near the Forest Service or water access to a river. Um, millennials really value that live where you play, not live where you work. And I think we're, we haven't even started the incline trend because the world is, is closer and smaller now uh, with, with Zoom, which we're all on, and uh, remote work. So the long-term, outlook, the long-term outlook is just huge for, for small acreage. And, and these are people, these are your middle-class earners who uh, maybe a median household income of, I don't know, $65,000, $70,000 a year. Uh, they're going to be looking to to buy something rurally, and maybe that's only a four hundred thousand dollar home, but it's in a very nice area, and we all want the nice things: the access to trails, uh, be able to walk to where I'm going to go fly fish right out my back door. Uh, the The long term demand for Montana and and the threat of subdividing these uh, these ranches. I think the threat of subdividing Western ranches is huge going forward. That's what I'm hearing from, from you as you describe this, this situation. So mm-hmm. on that note, I, I come up with one more question. Um, in the short term, do you see any movement in the market towards consolidation? And by that, I mean, like, are there some big players out there buying more than one property you know, and trying to, to join them together into, you know, single holding. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't disagree at all with what Coulter said about subdivision, but, you know, actually we haven't seen, you know, there was a, there was a rash of subdivision, uh, boy, I want to say maybe going back to the eighties and nineties and, and, you know, the rise of Montana land reliance and conservation easements was sort of a direct response to, you know, preventing that. And, you know, I'm not quite sure. I think there was a little bit of, uh, a saturation in the market, honestly, like, you know, I used to live in Bozeman and around Bozeman, you know, tens of thousands of, of lots were created in the uh, lead up to 2008, you know, basically the 2000s. And in some ways, I think we're still absorbing uh, those lots. So we really haven't seen a lot of subdivision. I think, again, I think we kind of uh, maybe we're oversupplied for a while. And even though there's demand for those small lots, like Coulter was saying, there's going to be an increased demand and therefore pressure to subdivide without a doubt on the, on the large, uh, you know, landscape scale and big purchasers, that is a big motivation for a lot of the high net worth, uh, big ranch buyers is big landscapes. And, um, you know, there, there are buyers, I mean, Arthur Blank comes to mind in Paradise Valley, you know, he's bought up multiple ranches and is and is not interested in subdividing, but the opposite, 
putting in conservation easement. And so we, there's kind of there's kind of differing pressures that way there. Again, there's going to be pressure for smaller tracks for people. That's all they can afford type deal. But there's also, yeah, there's definitely a thrust for um, having big shoulders, a big shouldered place. And uh, for those that can afford that. I, I definitely agree that uh, consolidation and assemblage uh, is happening. Um, I'm not going to take a value position on it. I, um, we see it. Uh, maybe I will take a value position on it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you held out for about three seconds. <laughs> I do like, I like it. I like seeing that uh, you can put a larger intact landscape together and it's going to be under one operation. I like that because you can optimize your overheads. You can spread out, spread out your fixed costs and you can run a bigger herd uh, that usually has um, soil and hydrological benefits when you run a bigger herd on a land base, uh, rotating it, moving it. If, you know, if, if this operator is going to get with the program of rest rotations, but I do like seeing assemblage. It's happening, and I, I, I think it's a good thing. I hope that they implement good practices with the subdivision, Andy, around Red Lodge. And I, I assume if it's happening around Red Lodge, it's going to be happening around Shoto, Montana, anywhere it's pretty. Uh, I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of farmers, ranchers, put up a sign uh, that'll sell forty acres so they can get around uh, the county restrictions of subdivisions. And they will FISBO for sale by owner. They'll FISBO 40 acres and they're getting it. And it'll go to a baby boomer who's going to build their dream home. Um, that Maybe that farmer or rancher sells off the worst corner or, or sells off the driest knoll on their place. Uh, you know, the least productive to them, but at an astronomical value. Uh, so I've been seeing a lot of that. It's happening. It's going to continue to happen. And it's, yeah. you're right, Andy, it's not happening through the planned one acre lots, uh, planned communities and subdivisions. Uh, we are still absorbing that crazy 2006 sub, uh, subdividing frenzy. Yeah. Um, but I've seen a lot of farmers say, you know what? Uh, my whole ranch is worth 1200 bucks an acre. This guy's going to pay me $5,000 an acre on 40 acres. Yeah, I'll, I'll sell it to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's just a good business decision. Yes. I think that's something a lot of people forget. Because at the end of the day, I mean, ranching is, is a culture. It's a lifestyle, but it's also a business. You know, you, you need to put cash on the balance sheet. And... I sometimes feel like ranchers have it held against them when they do that. Absolutely. Well, and we, we've talked a lot about this on our podcast, just by the nature of the appreciation of land in Montana, any rancher or farmer in Montana at this point basically has two enterprises. They have their production enterprise and they have a land company mm-hmm. because that asset, uh, basically our values have outstripped production capacity so it you're not justified in owning land based on what you can earn off of it so you're now you're now a land holding company as well and you you have to 
I mean, even if your your intention is just to keep it together for your family and your legacy and continue to run your ranch, you have to recognize that you have, you know, a land holding company that has to pencil or be dealt with. And, and we're seeing that reflected in, in um, ownership status. You know, it's not that uncommon for there to be a land holding LLC and the, the operation LLC and, and, you know, sophisticated operators will have a lease agreement, you know, within their own organization kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they have to recognize that um, that asset is, is, is such that it needs kind of its own consideration. Um, where gone are the days where that's just sort of, you know, the land just facilitates production. Um, it's almost the other way around. Yeah, for sure. So, Catherine, you know, oh, let's go on, Andy, because I was gonna, I was gonna pose a think tank question. I was wanting to ask you about, and Catherine would have some pretty good insight. Uh, go, well, go ahead, go ahead, and let's hear it. So, I, uh, I took some investors, some local Billings investors around my home area of Red Lodge Roberts, and showed them around my family's place, and just to use round numbers for easy mental math. Um, we were driving around and, and thinking about concessionizing uh, the ranch's location value and the scenery, but not subdividing the ranch into 20s or 40s. Uh, so say it's 2,000 acres mm-hmm. um, without having to subdivide the whole place, sell it off. It, we were thinking, okay, what if we have two county roads going through the ranch? What if we just sold one acre lots adjacent to these rural county roads, very quiet and private? There's utilities out there. There's easy to get water out there. Uh, why don't we just do 200 homes and concessionize that location value and, and capitalize on this booming market? Um, the trend of people wanting to live near Red Lodge, the mountains, and uh, have easy access to the road, which means easy access to the airport and buildings. Uh, so we were thinking about that, and I go, okay, so this, let's say it's 2,000 acres. Let's say it's worth $1,000 an acre today. I go, in seven years, it should, it should be worth $2,000 an acre. Um, I go, however, if you concessionize the view shed, I go, in seven years, I don't think it's worth $2,000 an acre because now you have all these roofs, all these roof lines you're looking at. So concessionizing the view shed, I think you're giving up long-term gains. It's it's short-term uh, capitalism, which I love capitalism, but it's you're capitalizing today and you're. I think you are giving up future potential and future gains by monetizing... Um, that view, that location with rooftops. I, th- I think you deteriorate and diminish the value once you do that. I mean, what you're saying makes total sense. Um, you know, there, there's a degree of speculation going on, right? You know, what do we think something's going to be worth in the future? And there's always a risk inherent in that. Um, but I think you definitely would lose value, you know, if, if you had the, the, the view impaired you know by development because like you said that's not why people are moving there um i hear that in bozeman all the time you know people are saying i I think there's like this understanding bozeman needs to build up right like it's better for bozeman to build up than out but if you live in bozeman proper you still want your views of the gallatins and the bridgers 
that you build up, it's going to impair that, and it's going to probably decrease your property values. Um, so yeah, we were talking earlier about subdivision value versus uh, keeping in large acreage value, and you asked about demand in that front, and it's difficult appraising because uh, subdivision value is a little more easy to quantify, I guess, and do calculations on, but the the value of open space is a little little harder to uh, put numbers on. But and we you know we talked about these particularly high net worth individuals that buy large landscapes and do some consolidation. And I think you know on the one hand uh, they're just putting together what they want in the short run. You know just 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 putting together a, a beautiful uh, place of their own with no rooftops. Uh, back to Coulter's comment to look at kind of deal. But I think at the same time, some of these guys, if you if you pin them down on it, are actually pretty savvy and they're looking at a long-term investment play. They know that that open space is only increasingly going to have value over time. And you know, they have the they have the economic wherewithal um and whatnot to, you know, sit on a place for 20, 30, you know, plus years kind of deal and 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 enjoy ownership in the meantime. But I think a lot of those guys actually have that calculation in mind too. That that that's only going to get more valuable, and it's going to it's it's a counter force to the subdivision uh, value component um, of a place. And 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 back to Coulter's example too about the small local operator. They maybe don't have that luxury of time if they're older and you know wealth and cash flow and stuff. It's like to hold the that's the that's the sort of local dilemma and you know culture's family is right in the mix of this you know do we hold on to this place for ever multiple generations and and let that value build over time but at the same time passing by the opportunity for real cash uh immediate by selling off smaller lots yeah and with the way the markets are going i mean that cash can be the difference between survival and you know having to to sell the whole thing so Right, right. Well, this has been tremendously helpful. Um, can I ask if I can stay in touch with you, gentlemen, as you know, I develop this this paper um, and come back to you with any questions that I might have? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just have one. I have one last parting comment that's been on my mind this whole this whole recording. You know, it's just it's so interesting. You know, we're talking about different ownerships, different ownership types, and I mentioned. We've talked a little bit about history too, you know, starting 30, 40 years ago or whatever, and kind of the the um, belief or uh, reputation that it was, you know, wealthy Californians coming out and putting up fences and cutting stuff off and damn them and this and that. But it's just so interesting when you're really out on the landscape and when you're really working with landowners like Coulter and I do, you can't generalize. Um, you know, sometimes there's a new wealthy person that comes in. And it's like they're the best thing that ever showed up or just their management and, um, you know, maybe, ta you know, putting locals to work and uh, turning a place around. And sometimes the, the the local place that's been there forever with the same family is freaking beat to hell and and trash the resource. I mean, it, it's amazing to me how you really can't draw too many generalities. Sometimes locals take great care of the resource. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes new people come in and take great care of the resource and don't. You know, it's just it's a mix. So for when anyone tries to, you know, put hard and fast um, 
you know, characterizations on any type of ownership or any type of owner, I don't think it holds, it holds true, um, which is pretty fascinating and pretty interesting. No, I, I would agree. And, you know, I hope it came across in our conversation, you know, what I'm trying to do with this is not paint anyone with a broad brush as to, to your point that, you know, a lot of these new landowners are, are getting painted, I think, in a very negative light. And I'm not sure that's entirely fair. You know, so my hope through purpose right. is a fair and honest look at like what this trend actually means for, for conservation in, in Montana, but also throughout the West. Because, you know, as you said, the, the new landowner might just have the resources to better care for the, the land um, than the previous owner did. Um, you know, yeah. that's just just the way it is. It's not good or bad. It just is. Well, and the funny thing is, and we talked about uh, intention of some of these new owners and that even that doesn't uh, a predictor because sometimes there's guys that come in with a whole bunch of good intention and culture kind of references, but they just don't understand and they're they're They can't, you know, they can't pull it off despite their intentions. And then some show up and maybe don't have such lofty conservation uh, intent or goals, but, you know, they're decent land uh, managers and operators and do a pretty, end up doing a pretty good job. So it's really hard to draw hard, fast um, judgments and broad-based characterizations. It's a, it's a complex mix. It is. It is. And it's going to take years for us to sort it all out, but we have to start yeah. now. Well, Catherine, I look forward to seeing your, your article and uh, I will share a link with both you and Andy. We'll post all of our raws here, raw material um on the cloud so anything you need for for social media we'll use that to get together for my editor and we'll we'll repost what you put together we'll promote your article and this was great uh look forward to having more of these conversations with perk likewise likewise let's talk some more um yeah about how to get you more involved in a workshop or something like that because one of my goals for the coming year is to to bring the people who do what you do more into you know some of the think tanky stuff that we have going on because to, to be quite honest um we haven't done a great job of integrating you know your, your industry uh into these conversations and i think it's an absolutely critical element to to get into some some answers so well thank you guys thanks for joining in today to the ranch investor podcast if you liked what you heard please reach out to katherine at perk.org uh, they've been around a long time. They have some very intriguing articles on on uh, free market environmentalism, uh, as well as Andy Ron's Montana Land Source. That's keep tracking that. He uh, he's got some market updates that are uh, are very intriguing and have some have some sellers upset right now. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all for joining in. Stay in touch. Thanks, Catherine. Nice to meet you. Thank you, John, and nice to meet you as well. We feature only the best accredited and established rural real estate professionals who analyze, transact, and manage billions of dollars annually. No newbies here. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.